The question of her identity has challenged many over the years, but as Pastor Phil explains, the scriptures themselves give insight into who she is. Let's open our Bibles and join Pastor Phil to learn more. So these are seven signs that the Holy Spirit is drawing our attention to that are pivotal to what is going on in this story, this drama that's unfolding that we call the tribulation period. Well, again, verse 1 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars, verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, understanding who this woman is, is really not only the key to understanding chapter 12, but in some ways it's the key to understanding the whole book of Revelation. Who is she? Well, throughout history, different people have presented different ideas as to who she is. Christian scientists claim that their founder, Mary Baker Eddy, was the woman of Revelation 12. In fact, I think she claimed that for herself. She wasn't the only one. There are uh, other uh, cult leaders founded by women that have claimed that they were the woman here. Christian scientists claim that, you know, she's the woman. They believe the child is Christian science, which she gave birth to. The dragon, they say, is the mortal mind trying to destroy the scriptures written in health and science, which was written by Mary Baker Eddy, etc. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches that this woman is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's not implausible, except Mary never fled into the wilderness where she was protected by God for three and a half years, as we see in verse 6. So I think it's a stretch to say it's Mary, although I understand why they would say that. Uh, many Protestants cl- uh, claim that this woman is the church. Uh, a lot of Protestant, especially denominational churches, are always trying to interject the church. You know, the, the church is gone, all right? I mean, we've, we've talked about that, you know, ad infinitum ad nauseum. I mean, the church is in heaven, you know? But it, there's always Protestant commentators that are always trying to interject the church into every passage they can. Let me say this. If this woman is the church, she's in trouble. Why? She's pregnant, And the church is always referred to in the New Testament as the virgin bride of Christ. Besides, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus, in a very real sense, gave birth to the church. When he hung on the cross, of course, and died in our place, uh, it made the church possible. A group of people who would be called out of this world by God to become his special people, his chosen people in this, you know, in the new covenant where people that were redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the church couldn't be possible. There could be no redeemed if Christ didn't die. So Christ gave birth to the church. And we see that symbolically in that Adam, where was his bride taken from? His side, right? Well, when the, 
When the second Adam, Jesus Christ, hung on the cross and the soldier thrust the spear into his side and out came the water and the blood, those have been a symbol for the church for centuries. And so in a very real sense, out of the side of the second Adam came his bride, the church. So, you know, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. He gave birth to the church. So then who is she? All right. Well, who is this woman? Remember, we said out of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are over 800 references to the Old Testament in those 404 verses. You want to know what something means in the book of Revelation, just go back in the Old Testament and see if you can find where the imagery comes from. Turn to Genesis 37. Now, you remember by this time, Jacob had 12 sons and Joseph was the second to the youngest, although he seemed to have more on the ball than his older brothers. His dad seemed like he could uh, trust him. The coat of many colors, some believe was the correct Hebrew translation is a long sleeve robe. A robe you would give to a foreman who didn't necessarily have to work manually but oversaw. Uh, Jacob obviously felt that, that Joseph was the kind of a young man who he could trust giving responsibilities to. And so he maybe put him over his older brothers, which was cause for a lot of the tension, all right? But Joseph was blind to a lot of it. And in Genesis 37, we'll pick it up in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, thinking that they were going to be excited about it. And they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Big brothers, isn't that cool? <laughs> and his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, look at here, here we go now, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, Now Jacob interprets the dream for us. What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Well, that's exactly what wound up happening, right? When Joseph, after having been sold into slavery by his older brothers, as God would have it, uh, he wound up as prime minister in Egypt after a series of events and many years uh, in Potiphar's house as a servant and a foreman. And then later on, interpreting a dream for Pharaoh, he wound up becoming, or a couple of dreams, he wound up becoming prime minister, all right? Uh, and eventually, because of the famine, his brothers and his father did come to him and not recognizing him, bowed down to him, even as God had uh, prophesied through these dreams. But the thing we need to understand is that Jacob interprets the dream for us and says the sun and the moon represent Jacob and Rachel, who was the father and mother of Joseph. And the 11 stars in Joseph's dream represented the, his 11 brothers. However, now we see 12 stars, which will represent all 12 tribes. So this woman, clothed with the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars, she's a symbol of Israel. She represents the nation of Israel. It's very clear from Genesis 37 that that's the intent. 
And so we believe this woman is none other than the nation of, of Israel. And in verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, we don't have to guess who this fiery red dragon is because verse 9 tells us. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, of course, Satan is not actually a dragon, any more than Israel is actually a woman. This is symbolic language. Satan is only referred to as a dragon here in Revelation. What is the first name that he is called by, or the first symbolic language that's used of him? What's he called in Genesis? A serpent. Why the change? Some would say, well, a dragon is more fierce than a serpent. That's true. I think that if you think about this, a serpent, uh, of course, works through stealth. A dragon is not like that. A dragon is kind of in your face, okay? Dragon doesn't have to slink around in darkness. Dragon's pretty fierce. I think by the time we come to Revelation, the devil is no more masquerading himself as an angel of light. He's no longer using stealth tactics. Man, he's out in the open now. I mean, he's right out front. In fact, he gets the whole world through the Antichrist, the false prophet, to worship him. So there's an inversion. We talk about... Uh, in the end times, uh, or we talk about times of judgment, where uh, w- which brings judgment, where people call good evil and evil good. This is going to be the total fulfillment of something like that. We see it even now, don't we? But then it's going to be really extreme, where the devil is good, he's God, and God, the God of the Bible, is bad, and all his followers are the devil worshipers of today. So there's this real inversion, okay? So by this time, the devil... He just comes right out of the closet, you might say, right out in the open as a dragon, a fiery red dragon. The same Greek word is used in Revelation 6, verse 4 of death, the, uh, the horse, uh, the horseman uh, who brought death. Of course, Satan is a murderer. Jesus told us that in John eight forty four. He was a murderer from the beginning, he tells us. The dragon is further described as having seven heads and ten horns, And on his heads were seven diadem. The diadem is a royal crown worn by a king. It speaks of authority and power. The seven heads represent seven mountains, which symbolize seven world empires running their course under Satan's dominion, who is the god of this world. Those seven empires are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, And the final empire, which is the one the Antichrist is going to rule, will be a ten-nation confederacy, and the the ten horns represent the ten kings that are going to rule under the Antichrist. Now, we'll cover all of this in more detail in chapter 17. I'm just throwing it out to you because it's mentioned here. We'll cover this in detail in chapter 17. The seven heads, though, represent the seven world empires. Six have come and gone. Rome was the last. There is the seventh one coming, which is going to be the rule of the Antichrist, who will reign over the whole world. The whole world will federate in a a ten-nation confederacy, and uh, he will have no doubt rulers over each one of those areas, those geographical areas, but he himself will be over all of them. And it's interesting, the shifting of the diadems 
from the dragon's head to the Antichrist's horns in chapter 13, verse 1, symbolizes how the devil, who is the God of this world, right? He is basically in control, although God is above it all. But God has allowed Satan to rule down here since Adam and Eve basically handed over the control of the earth to him in the garden. But Satan is the God of this world, and he can put into power people that he chooses. And he brought to power Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And he is going to give his authority to one final world empire, which will be the empire that the Antichrist is going to rule. And that's why you see the transfer of the diadem from the seven heads to the ten horns it's symbolically telling us that there are going to be ten kings under this final world empire that's going to rule the world. Of course, the Antichrist will be above it all. We know the devil, though, has the authority to do this because when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness for those 40 days, at one point he took the Lord up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, and said to the Lord Jesus Christ, all these are mine, I can give them to whoever I will, I will give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus did not challenge that claim. Jesus didn't say, Satan, you're a liar. You don't have control of the world. You can't do that. Jesus Christ knew that Satan was the God of this world. And if the Lord Jesus Christ had wanted to, the devil would have been glad to give him the kingdoms of this world if he didn't go to the cross. If he would have put himself first, he could have ruled. The very thing the Father's going to let him do when he returns, he could have bypassed the cross and gone right to earthly dominion. That would have left all of us out, though. See? So by putting us first, he died for us. When he rose again and ascended back to the Father, Psalm 2 tells us that the Father said to the Son, I will give to you the nations that you might rule them with a rod of iron. And he's coming back to do that very thing. But we know until then, Satan is the god of this world. John said in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world, the whole world system lies under the sway or the control of the wicked one. That's going to change soon. But we'll study all the meaning of all these symbols more in chapters 13 and 17. So I just wanted to kind of throw them out because they were introduced here. We'll look at them in more detail later. Well, verse 4, speaking of the dragon, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That first statement in verse 4, that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, the stars there of heaven are a reference to angels. We've talked about this before, but angels are depicted symbolically as stars elsewhere in the scriptures. We uh, looked at Revelation 9, verse 1, where it says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So this is an angel that comes down, all right? Uh, we know from Job 38, verse 7, that the morning, morning stars, a reference to angels, sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy when the Lord laid the foundation of the world. So when we talk about, or when you've heard a teacher talk about how that a third of the angels of heaven followed 
Lucifer and his rebellion against God. This is where we get the number from. A third of the angels, we get it right here from uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. How many was that? We don't know. We have no idea. There are probably billions and billions of angels. And if a third of them fell, there could be you know, hundreds of millions of fallen angels running around hassling us, which I think uh, gives us some insight into why we have such bad days at times, spiritually speaking. But um, there's a lot, no doubt, right? Uh, We don't know exactly how many. But when they followed Lucifer and his rebellion, they became fallen angels or demons. Now, this is interesting, and because it's brought up here, I want to just trace this a little bit, because Lucifer was not always the devil and Satan. He was originally created a very special being, the highest angel of all the angels God created. And he was named Lucifer, which whose name literally means light bearer, light bearer. But he fell. And I want to see these, uh, look at the two classic passages that deal with this. Turn to Isaiah 14, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, which says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, don't ask me to explain everything that Satan just said he wanted to do. Think of it this way, though. All of those are a reference to the fact that he didn't want to be number two in heaven. He wanted to be number one. He wasn't content to be the angel which God created to to rule over all the other angels. In other words, second in command to God himself. He wanted to be like the Most High. Five times he said, I will, I will, I will. That was his problem. I, pride, pride brought down this beautiful angel. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Verse 15, God said, but you, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. You know, I kind of think that that's what we're going to say when we finally see this creature. Is this the guy that caused all the trouble? Why? Because he's so beautiful. Not at all like we've come to think of Satan, you know, hideous, wearing this red outfit, pitchfork, tail, and so on. He's a very beautiful being, outwardly. Of course, inside his heart is a lot of evil and ugliness. But I think when we first see him, we're going to be absolutely shocked that such beauty could be capable of such evil. And it's going to shock us. Well, the second classic passage comes out of Ezekiel 28. When I say classic passage, I'm talking about of how Satan fell, how Lucifer fell. Now, in Ezekiel 28, starting at verse 1 through verse 10, God is prophesying through Ezekiel about the king of Tyre, the literal king of Tyre. 
But starting in verse 11, the language begins to change to the point where you realize there's no way the Lord could be talking about the physical king of Tyre anymore. He's talking to the creature behind the king of Tyre the, in the angelic realm, in the, in the spirit realm, the creature that we call Lucifer or Satan, uh, who is really pulling the strings on this earthly dictator and using him to do his bidding, which is interesting because there are demons over kingdoms, nations, that manipulate and control quite a bit. We'll look at this more next time as we look at Daniel chapter 10, which drives us home really powerfully. But anyway, starting in verse 11, we shift gears. And it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now right there we begin to realize, I've never met the king of Tyre, but it doesn't sound like this is talking to him. Okay? I mean, you were perfect in wisdom and beauty. You were in the garden, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, right there we know the king of Tyre was never in Eden, but Lucifer was. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. These are probably a reference to using a different colored precious stones to represent multicolored lights. We know that Adam and Eve, when they were first created, were clothed in light. They walked with God. They were perfect like God in the sense that they were sinless. And as such, their whole dimensionality could have been different than what we know of today. They were clothed in light, and when they fell, everything changed, not only for them, but for the whole creation. But here we see Lucifer clothed with multicolored lights. It goes on, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. This gives us insight into the fact that Lucifer was the worship leader of heaven. His voice, when he was singing praises to God, was like a million pipe organs uh, just joining in in worship to God. Incredible. We have no idea what worship in heaven is really like and how it was when Lucifer was leading worship in heaven. And, uh, and so it goes on to say, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. A cherub is the highest form of an angel. And God said, I established you. I created you perfect in wisdom and beauty. I gave you a voice to praise me like a thousand or a million pipe organs. I placed you as the anointed cherub that that, that oversaw or, or was in charge of all the other angels. I did that, God said. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created, look, till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sin, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, a reference to heaven, no doubt, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. 
It could be a reference to the fact that God destroyed his ministry. God removed him from the place of honor, destroying his authority and so on over all the angels of heaven. Uh, Obviously, Satan is going to be literally destroyed uh, in the lake of fire in the sense of for eternity. He won't be annihilated and go out of existence, but he will be cast into hell at one point forever. But God says, I destroyed you a covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And that last part, again, reminds us of Isaiah 14, verse 16, where it says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Well, you remember what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. God says, I cast you to the ground, Ezekiel 28. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The question is, when did Lucifer and his angels fall? You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.